we're going to be continuing on in our series through the book of Matthew. So we're going to be looking at chapter 3 this morning. So if you have a Bible, we encourage you to open that up. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under one of the seats near you. And if you're just coming, kind of checking out this thing called Christianity this morning, we're really glad that you're here. There's a little uh, shelf out in the foyer that has Bibles and other books that are there. Um, Check it out. Take anything that is of interest to you. We're just really glad that you're here hanging out with us. Um, I wasn't the best teenager. Um, I was a good teenager externally. I was a good kid. I was into sports and into academics, and uh, um, I learned maybe from some of my older brothers how to rebel well under the radar. And uh, you know, you'd look at me, I was a Brett's a really good kid. And uh, you get to that time in life when your parents want to go on a vacation, and they say, hey, we're heading out of town for a little while, and we're going to trust you. For some kids, that's probably a wise thing to say, but for me, that probably wasn't the wisest thing to say, and I remember one time when my parents were out of town, we lived on a cul-de-sac, and uh, somehow news got out in my high school that there was a party at Helvey's house, and soon the cul-de-sac was filled with cars on both sides, and there were all sorts of people in our house that uh, I didn't know who they were, and there were some beverages there that shouldn't have been there in the house of a a teenager, and uh, I remember an officer knocking on the door, and uh, say, hey, this, this needs to break up, so when cops come and teenagers are there, they, they tend to not mix real well together, so the cars vanished. But I remember um, anticipating the return of my parents and cleaning up everything as much as you can get it cleaned up and making sure that none of the beer cans were actually in our garbage can but were taken far away from, from the house and just recognizing that, you know, I have to be really prepared for their return. I have to make straight the crooked paths and the stains on the carpet. I have to restore this place to order. My wife and I were watching the U.S. Open, and I think it was on Friday night, and President Biden was flying in to New York City um, for some 9-11 um, commemorations, and uh, all the people were late uh, to the to match because all the roads had to be closed down for the presidential limousine and for him to get where he needs to go. And, and thinking about when a president makes a trip, it's not just, hey, I think I'm going to head to Topeka for the weekend, and he just gets on Air Force One and jets over there. No, the, the whole thing needs to be arranged. All the routes that he's going to drive, there's a whole lot of preparation. Air Force One has to be there, but Marine One has to be there too, and, and everything's got to be laid out and the paths cleared so that the president gets to where he needs to be going. This morning, we're going to be looking at at some preparation, that in the Gospel of Matthew is preparation for the arrival of the king. We've been seeing, as Matthew's been cluing us in in the Gospel, that, that this is He said the genesis of Jesus Christ, taking us back. This is the second Adam, the new Adam that's coming. And and we saw that he's in the line of David. And we even saw in the the genealogy there, there are three groups of 14. And why is it set up in that way? Well, probably because the word David in Hebrew, letters have an equivalent numerical quantity. And David adds up to 14. and, And all these pictures saying, David, he's... He's going to be the great 
father of this greater son that is on the scene. And then we see the magi show up and, and they say, you know, where is the one that's born king of the Jews? And Herod is like, oh, I don't like that news. And then we saw King Jesus having to leave and go down to Egypt and then the Lord calling him back and heading up to Nazareth and that's where he grew up. And then now about probably 25 years later, the story picks up in chapter 3. And so I want to read chapter 3 and then we'll talk a little bit about it this morning. This is chapter 3 of Matthew. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them with political correctness, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with his Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hands. And he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is a reading of God's Word. I've got a couple slides just to show you guys where kind of uh, this took place. Um, I'll go over on this side. Um, Jerusalem's in here. This is basically the Dead Sea down here, the Sea of Galilee. Jesus Nazareth is up in this area, and John is baptizing down in here, the wilderness of the Jordan, probably right before it goes into the Dead Sea here. So uh, the next slide shows you a little bit about what this wilderness looked like down there. Not a really hospitable area, not a place if you're a farmer that you're going, whoa, this land is great, can't wait to plant my, my crops here. And you see John needing to survive on locusts and wild honey. Um, one of the commentators said this, uh, locusts are the only type of insect permitted as food in the Mosaic law. And he says this, this insect was highly prized as nourishment. 
either in water and salt, like our prawns, just think a little, you know, a little shrimp having a little, a little uh, locust, you know, a little bit there, dip it in some cocktail sauce, or dried in the sun and preserved in honey and vinegar. That sounds super tasty as well. Or powdered and mixed with wheat flour to make a pancake. Don't you think just getting up on Saturday morning, the kids would just be thrilled. Hey, kids, we're having some locust pancakes with a, with a little maple syrup this morning. Or maybe honey, how about that? So John is, he's a character that uh, is very unusual. And to kind of put ourselves in the Jewish mind frame at that point in time, there was an expectation that the Messiah was coming. Um, the Gospel of Luke tells us everybody was awaiting the Messiah, the, the coming king, and there had been this prophetic silence basically since the end of Malachi, and Malachi at the end says there's one coming like Elijah who's going to, in essence, prepare the way, and, and Isaiah talks about the one coming to prepare the way of the Lord, and so all of a sudden this guy shows up, and the passage tells us that he's, he's wearing like this weird goat hair coat and uh, that he's eating this, this weird diet and he's got a leather belt. Turn, if you've got your Bibles, to the book of Second Kings. You don't have to, but it's chapter 1 and verse 8. King Ahaziah's is ill, and he's sending to a foreign nation to find out from the foreign god what in the world's going on with him. And uh, Elijah in, intercepts um, the emissaries and say, what in the world are you going to a foreign nation asking them what's going on? And uh, so they go back to Ahaziah, and he says uh, in verse 7, he said to them, what kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, Ahaziah, it's Elijah, the Tishbite. So when John comes on the scene and he's out in the wilderness and he's eating this weird diet and he's dressed in this weird way and he's speaking in kind of prophetic terms, it links everybody back to, whoa, this is someone exactly like Elijah. And you can tell the Holy Spirit was working on him because there were people coming from all over the place out into that type of landscape. You don't go out there, you know, <laughs> to, to have a really great time. I don't think there were a lot of people that were into rock climbing or doing that kind of stuff at this stage of history. So the reality is these people are being drawn out into this wilderness, this, this place of testing, this place of trial, but also a place of, of new beginnings. We see in the history of the nation that they are taken out into the wilderness, and in that wilderness they grow and they learn to walk with God, a start of a new nation. And it's said that it took a few days to get Israel out of Egypt, but it took 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. So this place of the wilderness is this place of sometimes purification and testing and trial, and there are people coming out to see John and to listen to his message. There's two voices that are mentioned in this text, and I want to look at the first one here. This is the voice of the one 
crying out in the wilderness. That's taken from Isaiah chapter 40. Make straight the way of the Lord. And in Isaiah 40, the one to come is not a human king, an earthly ruler. It's the Lord God that is coming to set things right. So it's kind of interesting that here we have John the Baptist and Matthew saying this fulfills what Isaiah was talking about in terms of the arrival of the Lord. So who is this one that's coming? And so as John the Baptist prepares the way, his message is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. It's not a word that uh, we like to hear much today. It's not very popular. Um, in Greek, um, it's literally, the word literally means to change your mind, metanoia. You guys have heard of metamorphosis. That's to change form. Metanoia means nous or noia is mind there. It's a change of mind. So he's drawing these people out. And what he's saying is you need to change your mind. And in the Hebrew, the Old Testament word would have been you need to shuv. You need to turn. From the direction you're going, another way. And another word in Hebrew is naham. You need to, to be sorry for the things you've done and you need to reorient, reorient your life in a different direction. Not a message that you would think would be drawing all these people out there when they get out there. John's like, hey, you're really messed up. You need to totally reorient your life from the way you were going to a new way. You need a total change in how you are thinking. Why? He says, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. The kingdom of heaven is one of Matthew's favorite words, and the other gospels will translate that, the kingdom of God. It's the same idea. They're used kind of interchangeably. Some think Matthew is more Jewish in his orientation, and Jews, to honor the name of God, would often not speak the name of God, so maybe he was using kingdom of heaven there. It may just be something stylistic, but he's saying the kingdom of God is is here. And this is a little Bible nerd on you, but it's in the perfect tense. The kingdom of God has come near. And the idea is this process of the kingdom arriving, it's, it's done. Now the kingdom is here. We're no longer in that process of the kingdom coming near, but it's already here. It's arrived. Later on in the gospel, and I think it's Matthew 12, 28, Jesus says, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, know that the kingdom of God has come upon you. So basically, the kingdom is here now. And when you think about kingdom, it wasn't primarily a physical location, but think more in the order of kingship or the authority of God is here you need to turn around. You need to change your thinking and the direction of your life. Why? Because God has come now to begin to establish his rule and reign on this planet. And to a Jew, that would have been really, really good news because they've been under the thumb of foreign powers for a long time. The whole story of the Old Testament basically is God choosing people and the people messing up and being broken and over and over this pattern repeats and then there's the hope that maybe it's David and this, this beautiful picture that David gets in 2 Samuel 7 of, hey God, I want to build you a temple and initially Nathan's like, yeah, go for it and then he goes back and talks to guys like, no, no, you're a soldier, a warrior, you're not going to be the one that builds the temple but tell you what, 
I'm going to build you a house, David, referring to a Davidic dynasty. And the one that initially came was Solomon, and I think the hopes were there, but you look at Solomon's life, and eh, he had a lot of issues, and so that didn't really go well. And then when he died, then Rehoboam and Jeroboam, the kingdom was split, and then you had some good kings, but mostly bad kings, and you go through this cycle of good and bad, ultimately, these promises or warnings back in Deuteronomy that I'm going to put you into exile ultimately come to be. They're exiled to Babylon and to Assyria, and then just a remnant come back. But then since that 400 years, the people of Israel basically, other than for a few short periods, were under the thumb of some foreign power. So as you read the Old Testament, it's like an uncompleted story. It's like, when is this king going to come? This promised son of David that was going to write all things, right? And then Matthew begins his gospel with this idea that this is the genesis of Jesus, the son of David. And so for a Jew, you're like, whoa, is this the one? Is this the Messiah? And then John is sent with this message to proclaim to the people to prepare their hearts for the arrival of the kingdom through King Jesus. And again, this is not a popular message in our culture. To repent. You need to repent. So what do they need to repent of? Well, I think the main thing that all of us need to repent of is that desire for us to rule and reign and to be sovereign in our own lives. We want to be kings and queens of our own lives, right? We want to call the shots. We want to determine what is right or wrong. And this goes all the way back to the beginning of Genesis where I want to determine what's good and what's evil. I want to be the one that knows that and determines that. I don't want anybody telling me what to do. And that's, I think, part of all of us, right? There's just something in us that when somebody tells us to do something, there's just this a little bit of a bow up and opposition to us. And maybe that's just me because I'm more rebellious than most. But, you know, I see a speed limit sign and I'm like, oh, that grates on me, you know. And I tell people the last part of my body to be sanctified will be my right foot. But the reality is there's there's something I think, and I'm not the way you're at, but you're not not far behind me. We all want to be, right, our own sovereigns. We want to determine what's right and wrong. We want to make our own decisions and John comes this guy that's that's wild in appearance wild in what he's looking like what he's wearing where he's living he's not part of the religious establishment that's back in Jerusalem he's living out in a place like that yet God's spirit is upon him and he's preaching with power he's even willing to confront the power brokers that be he calls out Herod and said you should not be married to Herodias she was Philip your brother's wife and you took her so you need to stop that John was even more of a threat to Herod Antipas than Jesus was because he in that prophetic tradition is calling a spade a spade and he is not mincing any words and we see that as he responds to the Pharisees in this passion, in this passage. He was a man of strong passion and conviction. And people responded to that. And John's message basically is the kingdom, the kingship has arrived. You need to stop thinking that you run your lives and you need to turn and respond in obedience to the Lord and King 
that is now here. And there were many that responded to John's message. They were baptized in the Jordan, confessing their sins. And for us, we hear baptism, and it's like, yeah, that's, well, obviously. But for a Jew, at that point in time, it was kind of irregular, this baptism. There was a community in Qumran where we get the Dead Sea Scrolls that were there, and, and they believed in all sorts of washings or ablations, but those were things that went on again and again and again. But this idea of being baptized once, acknowledging your repentance, confessing your sins, that was very unusual. And it was almost only used for those Gentiles that were wanting to become Jews. So here John is calling those who, from Jerusalem, they're calling Jews, and he's calling them out there, and he says, you all need to repent. And so that would have been shocking. It's like, no, no, we're, we're God's people. But some obviously recognize that, yeah, we've been seeking to run our own lives, and we need to turn. In Luke's gospel, he tells us some of the people that were going out there. There were just the common folks, and, and in here it says, bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance. It's just like, there's got to be more than just words. Yeah, I'm sorry. And you go on and you keep doing the same thing. No, it needs to be a turning, a reorientation, a redirection of your life. And so the people are like, what do we do? And he says, well, if you've got two tunics, you give one away to somebody in need. If you've got more food than you need, you share that with other people. And then there were some tax collectors that were out there. It's interesting to think about that. I'm wondering if Matthew first went out and heard the preaching of John the Baptist, his heart being prepared for the arrival of King Jesus. And what does he tell the tax collectors? Like, what do we do? We're tax collectors. He says, only collect what the government tells you you need to collect. Because how the tax collectors got rich, say the tax rate was 40%. It's like, okay, you collect 40%. It's like, no, you've got a Roman soldier standing right next to you and say, today I feel like collecting 60%. So I'll give 40% to Rome and I'll put 20% in my account. And that's how they became extremely wealthy and how they became extremely hated by everybody locally. And so he says, go back and just do what the government is asking you to do. And then there were some soldiers that came out to him. He said, what, what should we do? He says, leave your post, it's not good to be. No, he doesn't say that at all. He says, what? He says, don't extort people. Don't use your position to kind of line your own pockets as well. And I've talked to many people that police and soldiers in different countries, if you get pulled over, it's not like, okay, we're really concerned with your infraction. It's, okay, I can make this go away if Franklin shows up in a minute. And so Franklin shows up in a minute, it's like, okay, go ahead. But if you don't show Franklin, then... Eh, we're going to make life difficult for you. And he says, don't do that and be content with your pay. And so John is saying, you need to turn, you need to reorient your life, stop thinking that it's all about you, that you're the king of your own domain, and you need to start living as if there's another king. And that king is King Jesus. So many responded to John's message, but there was a group that did not respond to John's message. And who were they? Here it says, verse 7, he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism. It doesn't say they were baptized, they were just coming out to the baptism. So it's a possibility that they were baptized, but I think they're the religious leaders coming from Jerusalem, said, what in the world is going on out here in the desert? We're here to verify credentials, to check you out, John. And John sees them coming, and to try and smooth things out with the Israeli leaders, religious leaders, he calls them a brood of vipers. 
I was out taking the garbage out the other day, and there was a little snake that was right by our garbage can. And my theory is if it looks like a viper, it gets treated like a viper. <laughs> so I was like, okay, this thing is small, but if it is venomous, it can have a potent venom. So that viper is no longer on the planet. But the reality is he's calling these guys venomous snakes, not a way to win points and influence them in a positive direction. But they weren't there to turn, to respond to the new king. They were there to criticize and to shut this guy down. And they didn't think they needed to repent. The Pharisees, that was the group, it was a lay group, but the group of Jews associated with their synagogues that were the most serious about keeping the law. Not only the law, but the oral traditions as well, right? They were fastidious about doing everything correctly. So when they go out and they hear John saying, you need to turn, you need to repent, it's like, I don't need to turn. Do you know who I am? Do you know, before I make my mojito, I tithe some of my mint. I give that away. That's how holy and righteous I am. I don't need to turn. I don't need to shove. I don't need to have a change of mind because my mind already is moving in the right direction. And then the Sadducees are coming out. And these are two groups that didn't usually get along very well. But sometimes a common enemy makes strange bedfellows, right? So they're out there as well. And the Sadducees were kind of the intellectual elite. They were the priests, the ones that kind of run the temple area. And many of them didn't even believe that there was an afterlife, that there was a judgment coming. So they're like, I don't need this guy. This guy's a rube. He doesn't have any education. He doesn't know what the heck he's talking about. We are much more sophisticated and knowledgeable than him. We don't need to repent. Forget it. That's stuff for the common folk. We don't need that. We don't even believe in half that stuff. Though we have positions of promulgating truth. And we'll see these guys show up later in the gospel over and over as they're doing all of their stuff to be seen by people, but their hearts have not been transformed. And if they were coming out to be baptized, the only reason they were coming out to be baptized was to kind of get some cred. Yeah, I've been baptized by John. And this is frightening for me because these were the religious professionals of the day. And it's like, Lord, there's an extreme danger when your vocation and following Jesus are linked together. And it's like, this can become just something that you do. I'm just preparing a message because I gotta speak it on a Sunday morning, right? Or is this like, this stuff needs to impact my heart. It better be bringing forth fruits in keeping with repentance in my own life before I ever share anything with anybody else. And these folks were just, they were all about the show. Yeah, we've got the temple. It's an amazing temple, Herod's temple. We've got all the flash. It's gold. It's glittering. Man, this is amazing. We come in there. You hear us put all our money in the coffers, and everybody's like, whoa, are those people religious people? They've got it together. They're the highest. And John says, hey, you group of snakes, what are you out here for? And he says some strong things about the judgment to come, right? 
He says, basically, the, the axe is at the bottom of the tree, ready to cut it down. And he says, basically, you guys are, are like the chaff. When wheat was harvested, then you'd run over it, and it would separate the grains from the chaff, the husks and stuff that weren't useful, and then you'd go in and you'd throw it up in the air, and the wind would blow the chaff to the side, and just the grains would remain, and so you'd gather in those grains. That's nutritious and good, and then you'd burn up the chaff, and he's saying that is coming for those that won't genuinely repent. And again, that message does not preach well in our culture. Because I think we're mainly like the Sadducees, right? It's like, I'm pretty darn good. I don't even know if I believe in any of this judgment stuff, and I'm going to do what I'm going to do, right? Or people think, I'm just pretty darn good. Well, I'm not that bad to, to warrant judgment, right? Because now we're told from the time we're this big, you're all that. You're amazing. Everything you do is wonderful. You never lose. You're always winning. You're always on top. Everybody gets a trophy, right? All that kind of stuff. And it's just like, well, I'm, I'm that, right? And, and how the world tells me, you do you. So whatever I do, I'm setting, I'm setting the bar for myself. And if the bar is here or there or there, it's, it's my decision, right? I don't need any of this repent stuff. All I need is to be true to myself. All I need is to be my own king or queen. That's all I'm asking for. That's not too much, is it? And so John the Baptist says, whoa, hold on. There needs to be a turn of direction in your life. There needs to be a change of mind. You need to recognize that you are a creature, not the creator, that the sovereign king has come and he's entered into this world and his reign is beginning to be exercised and one day will be fully culminated when he returns again. And this time we've got this opportunity to change and align our thinking and our living with the way of the king and it's the best way for our lives because he's the king who created us and he's not trying to rip us off or rob us. He's trying to get us to move in the right direction. But for so many of us, we think our direction is the right direction and we're smarter than God. I know, because I've been there. I was a lot smarter than God. Yet he says, there's one coming whose sandals I'm not even worthy to carry. Culturally, you gotta know, if you're a disciple of a rabbi, that was a task that was never to be done even by the disciple of a rabbi. Only the slaves were to do that task. And there was even Jewish rabbis that wrote that not even a Hebrew slave could do that task. It has to be a Gentile slave that does that task. And so what is John saying? All these people are flocking out to John. He's the man at this point in time. And he says, there's one coming after me that's mightier or greater or more worthy of praise than me. And I'm not even worthy to be the lowest slave in his kingdom. And he's coming. And I'm just baptizing you with water. But he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And I think for a Jew, they take him back to Ezekiel 36, this time where the Holy Spirit's going to be poured out and we're going to have new hearts and the Holy Spirit's going to dwell within us so that this endless cycle of screwing up over and over again is not going to be repeated. Why? Because now the Spirit of God is residing in us, enabling us to live a life that we couldn't live on our own. So the Jews are like, yes, we're all about that. We need the arrival of this Holy Spirit and he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, but also he's going to baptize with fire. 
And fire can be taken in one of two ways. It can be taken in terms of purification. Fire refines, but I don't think that's what he's talking about here. Because right after he talks about the chaff being burned up with unquenchable fire. So what he's talking about, I think, is the destruction of those that will not repent, will not reorient their lives around King Jesus. And he says, he's coming and he's much, much greater than I. In the other Gospels, he says, when Jesus comes and is baptized, behold, what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Takes us back to Matthew 1, where he's talking to Joseph, and he's going to call him Jesus, Yahweh saves. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. So it goes back to this, you know, we need salvation from the Romans. We need salvation. No, he says we need salvation from our sins and I think the primary sin that we all have is that sin of wanting to be our own God, to be king. It's the kingdom of Brett Helvey. It's arrived. Why is not everybody bowing, right? And we all, in some part, feel that way. And what John is saying, you need to repent of that attitude that the whole world needs to revolve around you, and you need to recognize the whole world revolves around Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the king that is to come. And he says, in comparison to Jesus, I'm not even worthy to be his lowest slave. And he says, this is one that's coming. And then right after that, verse 13, it says, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John. The king has arrived. It's about a 70-mile journey from northern Israel down to where John is, and Jesus takes that journey down there specifically. It says, to be baptized by him. And John is like, well, this, this is not what should be happening, right? I need to be baptized by you, right? I just said you are greater in every aspect than I am. You need to be baptizing me. What, Jesus, do you have to repent of? What do you have to confess? What redirection do you need in your life? Absolutely none. And then Jesus says, verse 15, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What in the world is Jesus talking about there? There's nothing in the Old Testament that requires baptism to be righteous. I think what Jesus is doing here, it's his first major act of identifying with sinful humanity like you and me. He's saying this fulfills all all righteousness, not just some righteousness, but this fulfills all righteousness. How in the world does this one act of baptism fulfill all righteousness? Well, in this act, Jesus is saying, I am identifying with my people, the sinful people. I am going into the waters of chaos and death. And you gotta know, for the ancients, water was not, oh, we get to go to the beach, it's a great, water was chaotic, it was the place of death, why? Because you cannot survive in the water, right? It's where land is brought out of the water, back in Genesis, out of that chaos where life comes. But if you're out in the water without anything, you're dying, right? So that picture of baptism is dying in the water, coming out of that water to newness of life. And Jesus is the one that is saying, you know, I'm willing to enter into this identification with these people ultimately giving my life. And I think this is this first public act where he begins his ministry by saying, I'm identifying with these people. 
He who knew no sin was made sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus willingly took that upon himself, and I think that's what he's doing here. He's so identifying with us, his people, that he's willing to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. Why? Because all righteousness comes from us, right? 1 Corinthians 1.30. Jesus is what? Our sanctification, our redemption, our wisdom from God, but our righteousness. Any righteousness that we have is that which comes through Jesus Christ. And so when he identifies with us in this baptism, he's beginning this process that's going to culminate at the cross and the resurrection where he identifies with his people. He says, I'm here to forgive you of your sins and to bear your sins so that you don't have to bear ultimately the wrath of God. It's interesting in Luke 12 50, Jesus says, you know, there's a baptism coming that I got to be baptized with that I'm not at all excited about. And what was he talking about there? He wasn't talking about John's baptism, but he was talking about the baptism of the cross. So in Jesus' life, this whole idea of baptism, it's like I am placing myself in the waters of destruction and God hopefully and will bring me through that to newness of life. And here to me is that first step of this king doing this what kind of a king does that it's willing to identify with the lowest who's coming out it's it's not the the spiritually astute people it's the common folks it's the tax collectors it's the soldiers it's the navy people that are going out it's it's not the best you know no no offense but it's all people that have this need and that's what john's saying it doesn't matter if you're religious or not religious and it's not like jesus didn't touch those even in the highest echelons remember Joseph of Arimathea, he gave him his tomb. Nicodemus comes out to see him at night. So God's even at work among these spiritual elite and saying, yeah, there's got to be more than just, just this. And in Isaiah 53, 11, it says this, by his knowledge, talking about this servant that's to come, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, for he shall bear their iniquities. How does all righteousness come in? It comes in through Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. So the first voice was the voice crying out in the wilderness. And the people, some of the people, heard and responded and reorienting them, their lives towards the coming king. Some didn't, but even Jesus responded there, identifying with the people. But then there's a second voice that speaks. Verse 13, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? But Jesus answers him, let it be so now, for it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So Jesus coming out of the water of the Jordan, and I think you got a picture immersion here, coming up out of the water, and all of a sudden the heavens are open, like for Ezekiel the heavens were opened, and this dove-like thing comes down and rests on Jesus, the Spirit of God. And there's no clear connection between doves and spirits in the Old Testament. But some take you back all the way to Genesis 1-2 where the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. 
The only other place that word hovering is used, it's used of a bird. So that idea of, okay, is this a place where the spirit is at work bringing life out of death there? Or the dove that Noah sends out in Genesis 8 and it returns with an olive branch, this branch of peace. But regardless, the spirit anoints Jesus and rests on Jesus. Who is this king? Read a couple passages in Isaiah. Isaiah 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. So here's this identification of Jesus with the Spirit as the Spirit comes down and he's the servant of God there and he is the one that's going to bring, bring peace. And the Father delights in him. This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. In the Old Testament, the son was often, the king was often referred to as a son of God. You see that in Psalm 2, and that recognition that this is my son, but to me it's more than just that in a metaphorical way, but this is the actual son of God. And we know that because we've read Matthew 1 and 2, that there's this amazing connection between the deity of God and the humanity of Christ, that this king Messiah to come is also the very son of God. Of God, and he is the servant as well as the king. And so there are all these pictures from Isaiah that are being brought together here that he is the one that's going to have the authority of the government on him. He's going to be the wonderful counselor, almighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. How does that all work? I'm not really sure. How can the son be the king and the father as well? But here we have all three represented you have the father speaking, the Holy Spirit descending, and you have Jesus there. And he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And I love this because this is before Jesus started to do any of his ministry. That God took delight in his son just for his son being his son. He was just hanging out in Nazareth, probably just being a good carpenter, you know, making sure things were straight, maybe a mason as well. The walls were straight and square and everything worked well and he did a job and he did it well. And it wasn't like, well, I can't see it from my house, so I'm just going to do shabby work here. But at this point in time, before Jesus had entered into ministry, he says, I'm just really well pleased with my son. And I think God wants us to know that as well. If we have trusted him, if we have turned to him, we are his beloved sons and daughters. And he's pleased with us, even if oftentimes we're not pleased with ourselves. And he says, I've come by my spirit to take up residence in you and do the things that you can't do. You may have tried to change and change and change and change and change, and it's just you always hit a wall. But you know what? Now, by my spirit, there's an ability to change. And that process is sometimes slow, but he says, you know, I'm going to get you there. I've begun this good work in you and I'm going to carry it out to completion. The kingdom has come here, but it has not yet fully fulfilled. That's why in the Lord's Prayer it says what? Your kingdom come, what? Your will be done. So there's a part that we play in this kingdom coming into this world, but it's, 
It's here and it's not yet fully here. And so he calls us to walk once we've turned to follow King Jesus. So again, there's two voices in this section this morning. The first, eccentric, unintimidated, bold, in your face, calling you to repent, to turn, to recognize that there's a real king and he's here and you're not him. And then there's a second voice saying not only is that king the coming king, but he is my beloved son. And later on in the transfiguration, when the father speaks again, says, this is my beloved son. What does he say? Listen to him. So that's my question this morning. There's two voices here. Are you listening? Am I listening? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you work through all sorts of different people. Sometimes it's bold and in our face and sometimes it's gentle like a dove. Yet, Lord, help us to hear what you are speaking to us. And Lord, I know I lived for quite a while wanting to be my own king. And I thank you that you're gracious and kind that if we're willing to turn and acknowledge you as the true king, that your forgiveness is there, that you'll adopt us into your family and that you will then baptize us with the Holy Spirit. You'll give us everything we need for life and godliness as we walk on this planet. So Lord, thank you for that hope of life. But Lord, help us also to hear the warning in this passage that one day we will all stand before you Whether we believe that or not, that is the reality. That you are the king and the creator and that we owe everything we have to you. What do we have that we have not received, your word says. So Lord, I pray for anyone here who is still trying to rule and run their own lives. That your spirit would speak to them. That they would see that you're calling them to turn not because you want them to have a life of misery, but because you want them to have life and that life to the full. Lord, help us, as Jesus said, to have ears to hear what you're saying to us. And it's in Jesus' powerful and precious name we pray. Amen.